Chapters 31 and 32 of Omu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Omu, a narrative of adventures in the South Seas by Herman Melville. Chapter 31. The Calabooza Baritani. About a mile from the village we came to a halt. It was a beautiful spot. A mountain stream here flowed at the foot of a verdant slope. On one hand, it murmured along until the waters, spreading themselves upon a beach of small, sparkling shells, trickled into the sea. On the other was a long defile, where the eye pursued a gleaming, sinuous thread, lost in shade and verdure. The ground next the road was walled in by a low, rude parapet of stones, and upon the summit of the slope beyond was a large native house, the thatch dazzling white, and in shape an oval. Calabooza! Calabooza Baritani! The English jail, cried our conductor, pointing to the building. For a few months past, having been used by the consul as a place of confinement for his refractory sailors, it was thus styled to distinguish it from similar places in an about papity. Though extremely romantic in appearance, on a near approach it proved but ill-adapted to domestic comfort. In short, it was a mere shell, recently built, and still unfinished. It was open all round, and tufts of grass were growing here and there under the very roof. The only piece of furniture was the stocks, a clumsy machine for keeping people in one place, which I believe is pretty much out of date in most countries. It is still in use, however, among the Spaniards in South America, from whom, it seems, the Tahitians have borrowed the contrivance, as well as the name by which all places of confinement are known among them. The stocks were nothing more than two stout timbers, about twenty feet in length, and precisely alike. One was placed edgeways on the ground, and the other resting on top, left at regular intervals along the seam several round holes, the object of which was evident at a glance. By this time our guide had informed us that he went by the name of Cap'n Bob, Captain Bob, and a hardy old Bob he proved. It was just the name for him. From the first, so pleased were we with the old man, that we cheerfully acquiesced in his authority. Entering the building, he set us about fetching heaps of dry leaves to spread behind the stocks for a couch. A trunk of a small coconut tree was then placed for a bolster, rather a hard one, but the natives are used to it. For a pillow, they use a little billet of wood, scooped out, and standing on four short legs, a sort of head-stool. These arrangements completed, Captain Bob proceeded to Hanapar, or secure us, for the night. The upper timber of the machine being lifted at one end, and our ankles placed in the semicircular spaces of the lower one, the other beam was then dropped, both being finally secured together by an old iron hoop at either extremity. This initiation was performed to the boisterous mirth of the natives, and diverted ourselves not a little. Captain Bob now bustled about, like an old woman seeing the children to bed. A basket of baked taro or Indian turnip was brought in, and we were given a piece all round. Then a great counterpane of coarse brown tappa was stretched over the whole party, and after sundry injunctions to moi moi and be my tie, in other words to go to sleep and be good boys, 
we were left to ourselves, fairly put to bed and tucked in. Much talk was now had concerning our prospects in life, but the doctor and I, who lay side by side, thinking the occasion better adapted to meditation, kept pretty silent, and before long the rest ceased conversing, and, wearied with loss of rest on board the frigate, were soon sound asleep. After sliding from one reverie into another, I started, and gave the doctor a pinch. He was dreaming, however, and, resolved to follow his example, I troubled him no more. How the rest managed I know not, but for my own part I found it very hard to get asleep. The consciousness of having one's foot pinned, and the impossibility of getting it anywhere else than just where it was, was most distressing. But this was not all. There was no way of lying but straight on your back, unless, to be sure, one's limb went round and round in the ankle like a swivel. Upon getting into a sort of doze, it was no wonder this uneasy posture gave me the nightmare. Under the delusion that I was about some gymnastics or other, I gave my unfortunate member such a twitch that I started up with the idea that someone was dragging the stocks away. Captain Bob and his friends lived in a little hamlet hard by, and when the morning showed in the east, the old gentleman came forth from that direction likewise, emerging from a grove, and saluting us loudly as he approached. Finding everybody awake, he set us at liberty, and, leading us down to the stream, ordered every man to strip and bathe. "'All hands, my boy! Hannah, Hannah, wash!' he cried. Bob was a linguist, and had been to sea in his day, as he many a time afterward told us. At this moment we were all alone with him, and it would have been the easiest thing in the world to have given him the slip, but he seemed to have no idea of such a thing, treating us so frankly and cordially, indeed, that even had we thought of running, we would have been ashamed of attempting it. He very well knew, nevertheless, as we ourselves were not slow in finding out, that, for various reasons, any attempt of the kind, without some previously arranged plan for leaving the island, would be certain to fail. As Bob was a rare one every way, I must give some account of him. There was a good deal of personal appearance about him. In short, he was a corpulent giant, over six feet in height, and literally as big round as a hogshead. The enormous bulk of some of the Tahitians has been frequently spoken of by voyagers. Beside being the English consul's jailer, as it were, he carried on a little Tahitian farming. That is to say, he owned several groves of the breadfruit and palm, and never hindered their growing. Close by was a taro patch of his, which he occasionally visited. Bob seldom disposed of the produce of his lands. It was all needed for domestic consumption. Indeed, for gormandizing, I would have matched him against any three common councilmen at a civic feast. A friend of Bob's told me that, owing to his voraciousness, his visits to other parts of the island were much dreaded, for, according to Tahitian customs, hospitality without charge is enjoined upon every one, and though it is reciprocal in most cases, in Bob's it was almost out of the question. The damage done to a native larder in one of his morning calls was more than could be made good by his entertainers spending the holy days with him. 
The old man, as I have hinted, had, once upon a time, been a cruise or two in a whaling vessel, and therefore he prided himself upon his English. Having acquired what he knew of it in the forecastle, he talked little else than sailor phrases, which sounded whimsically enough. I asked him one day how old he was. Oli! he exclaimed, looking very profound in consequence of thoroughly understanding so subtle a question. Oh, very oli, thousand ear, more, big man when Captain Tootie, Captain Cook, heavy in sight, in sea parlance came into view. This was a thing impossible, but adapting my discourse to the man, I rejoined, Ah, you see Captain Tootie? Well, how you like him? Oh, he might I, good, friend of me and know my wife. On my assuring him strongly that he could not have been born at the time, he explained himself by saying that he was speaking of his father all the while. This indeed might very well have been. It is a curious fact that all these people, young and old, will tell you that they have enjoyed the honor of a personal acquaintance with the great navigator, and if you listen to them, they will go on and tell anecdotes without end. This springs from nothing but their great desire to please, well knowing that a more agreeable topic for a white man could not be selected. As for the anachronism of the thing, they seem to have no idea of it. Days and years are all the same to them. After our sunrise bath, Bob once more placed us in the stocks, almost moved to tears at subjecting us to so great a hardship. But he could not treat us otherwise, he said, on pain of the consul's displeasure. How long we were to be confined he did not know, nor what was to be done with us in the end. As noon advanced, and no signs of a meal were visible, some one inquired whether we were to be boarded as well as lodged at the Hotel de Calabuza. Vast heavy, a vast heaving, or wait a bit, said Bob. Cow cow, food, come ship by by. And sure enough, along comes rope yarn with a wooden bucket of the Julia's villainous biscuit. With a grin, he said it was a present from Wilson. It was all we were to get that day. A great cry was now raised, and well was it for the landlubber that he had a pair of legs and the men could not use theirs. One and all, we resolved not to touch the bread, come what come might, and so we told the natives. Being extravagantly fond of ship biscuit, the harder the better, they were quite overjoyed, and offered to give us every day a small quantity of baked breadfruit and an Indian turnip in exchange for the bread. This we agreed to, and every morning afterward, when the bucket came, its contents were at once handed over to Bob and his friends, who never ceased munching until nightfall. Our exceedingly frugal meal of breadfruit over, Captain Bob waddled up to us with a couple of long poles hooked on one end, and several large baskets of woven coconut branches. Not far off was an extensive grove of orange trees in full bearing, and myself and another were selected to go with him and gather a supply for the party. When we went in among the trees, the sumptuousness of the orchard was unlike anything I had ever seen, while the fragrance shaken from the gently waving boughs regaled our senses most delightfully. 
In many places, the trees formed a dense shade, spreading overhead a dark rustling vault, groined with boughs, and studded here and there with the ripened spheres, like gilded balls. In several places, the overladen branches were borne to the earth, hiding the trunk in a tent of foliage. Once fairly in the grove, we could see nothing else. It was oranges all round. To preserve the fruit from bruising, Bob, hooking the twigs with his pole, let them fall into his basket. But this would not do for us. Seizing hold of a bough, we brought such a shower to the ground that our old friend was fain to run from under. Heedless of remonstrance, we then reclined in the shade and feasted to our heart's content. Keeping up the baskets afterward, we returned to our comrades, by whom our arrival was hailed with loud plaudits. And in a marvelously short time, nothing was left of the oranges we brought but the rinds. While inmates of the Calabooza, we had as much of the fruit as we wanted, and to this cause and others that might be mentioned may be ascribed the speedy restoration of our sick to comparative health. The orange of Tahiti is delicious, small and sweet, with a thin dry rind. Though now abounding, it was unknown before Cook's time, to whom the natives are indebted for so great a blessing. He likewise introduced several other kinds of fruit. Among these were the fig, pineapple, and lemon, now seldom met with. The lime still grows, and some of the poorer natives express the juice to sell to the shipping. It is highly valued as an antiscorbutic. Nor was the variety of foreign fruits and vegetables which were introduced the only benefit conferred by the first visitors to the society group. Cattle and sheep were left at various places, more of them anon. Thus, after all that have of late years been done for these islanders, Cook and Vancouver may, in one sense at least, be considered their greatest benefactors. Chapter 32 Proceedings of the French at Tahiti As I happened to arrive at the island at a very interesting period in its political affairs, it may be well to give some little account here of the proceedings of the French by way of episode to the narrative. My information was obtained at the time from the general reports then rife among the natives, as well as from what I learned upon a subsequent visit, and reliable accounts which I have seen since reaching home. It seems that for some time back the French had been making repeated ineffectual attempts to plant a Roman Catholic mission here, but, invariably treated with contumely, they sometimes met with open violence, and in every case those directly concerned in the enterprise were ultimately forced to depart. In one instance, two priests, Laval and Casset, after enduring a series of persecutions, were set upon by the natives, maltreated, and finally carried aboard a small trading schooner, which eventually put them ashore at Wallace Island, a savage place, some two thousand miles to the westward. Now, that the resident English missionaries authorized the banishment of these priests is a fact undenied by themselves. I was also repeatedly informed that by their inflammatory harangues they instigated the riots which preceded the sailings of the schooner. At all events, it is certain that their unbounded influence with the natives would easily have enabled them to prevent everything that took place on this occasion, had they felt so inclined. 
melancholy as such an example of intolerance on the part of Protestant missionaries must appear, it is not the only one, and by no means the most flagrant, which might be presented. But I forbear to mention any others, since they have been more than hinted at by recent voyagers, and their repetition here would, perhaps, be attended with no good effect. Besides, the conduct of the Sandwich Island missionaries in particular has latterly much amended in this respect. The treatment of the two priests formed the principal ground, and the only justifiable one, upon which Dupetit-Thuar demanded satisfaction, and which subsequently led to his seizure of the island. In addition to other things, he also charged that the flag of Marinhut, the consul, had been repeatedly insulted, and the property of a certain French resident violently appropriated by the government. In the latter instance, the natives were perfectly in the right. At that time, the law against the traffic in ardent spirits, every now and then suspended and revived, happened to be in force, and finding a large quantity on the premises of Victor, a low, knavish adventurer from Marseilles, the Tahitians pronounced it forfeit. For these, and similar alleged outrages, a large pecuniary restitution was demanded, $10,000, which there being no exchequer to supply, the island was forthwith seized, under cover of a mock treaty, dictated to the chiefs on the gun-deck of Dupetit-Thuar's frigate. But, notwithstanding this formality, there now seems little doubt that the downfall of the Pomeries was decided upon at the Tuileries. After establishing the protectorate so-called, the rear-admiral sailed, leaving Monsieur Bruat governor, assisted by Rhine and Carpain, civilians, named members of the Council of Government, and Marinhut, the Council, now made Commissioner Royal. No soldiers, however, were landed, until several months afterward. As men, Rhine and Carpain were not disliked by the natives, but Bruat and Marinhut they bitterly detested. In several interviews with the poor queen, the unfeeling governor sought to terrify her into compliance with his demands, clapping his hand upon his sword, shaking his fist in her face, and swearing violently. "'Oh, king of a great nation,' said Pomerie in her letter to Louis-Philippe, "'fetch away this man. I and my people cannot endure his evil doings. He is a shameless man.' Although the excitement among the natives did not wholly subside upon the rear admiral's departure, no overt act of violence immediately followed. The queen had fled to Waimeo, and the dissensions among the chiefs, together with the ill-advised conduct of the missionaries, prevented a union upon some common plan of resistance. But the great body of the people, as well as their queen, confidently relied upon the speedy interposition of England a nation bound to them by many ties, and which, more than once, had solemnly guaranteed their independence. As for the missionaries, they openly defied the French governor, childishly predicting fleets and armies from Britain. But what is the welfare of a spot like Tahiti to the mighty interests of France and England? There was a remonstrance on one side, and a reply on the other, and there the matter rested for once in their brawling lives, St. George and St. Denis were hand and glove, and they were not going to cross sabres about Tahiti.
During my stay upon the island, so far as I could see, there was little to denote that any change had taken place in the government. Such laws as they had were administered the same as ever. The missionaries went about unmolested, and comparative tranquility everywhere prevailed. Nevertheless, I sometimes heard the natives inveighing against the French, no favorites by the by throughout Polynesia, and bitterly regretting that the queen had not, at the outset, made a stand. In the house of the chief Adea, frequent discussions took place concerning the ability of the island to cope with the French. The number of fighting men and muskets among the natives were talked of, as well as the propriety of fortifying several heights overlooking Papeti. Imputing these symptoms to the mere resentment of a recent outrage, and not to any determined spirit of resistance, I little anticipated the gallant, though useless warfare, so soon to follow my departure. At a period subsequent to my first visit, the island, which before was divided into nineteen districts, with a native chief over each, in capacity of governor and judge, was, by Bruat, divided into four. Over these he set as many recreant chiefs, Ketodi, Tadi, Utamai, and Paraita, to whom he paid one thousand dollars each, to secure their assistance in carrying out his evil designs. The first blood shed, in any regular conflict, was at Mahanar upon the peninsula of Taraibo. The fight originated in the seizure of a number of women from the shore by men belonging to one of the French vessels of war. In this affair, the islanders fought desperately, killing about fifty of the enemy and losing ninety of their own number. The French sailors and marines, who at the time were reported to be infuriated with liquor, gave no quarter, and the survivors only saved themselves by fleeing to the mountains. Subsequently, the battles of Harar Parpai and Ferrarar were fought, in which the invaders met with indifferent success. Shortly after the engagement at Harar Parpai, three Frenchmen were waylaid in a pass of the valleys and murdered by the incensed natives. One was Lafarve, a notorious scoundrel and a spy, whom Bruat had sent to conduct a certain Major Fergus, said to be a Pole, to the hiding place of four chiefs, whom the governor wished to seize and execute. This circumstance violently inflamed the hostility of both parties. About this time, Katotai, a depraved chief, and the pliant tool of Bruat, was induced by him to give a great feast in the Vale of Paris, to which all his countrymen were invited. The governor's object was to gain over all he could to his interests. He supplied an abundance of wine and brandy, and a scene of bestial intoxication was the natural consequence. Before it came to this, however, several speeches were made by the islanders. One of these, delivered by an aged warrior, who had formerly been at the head of the celebrated Ariori Society, was characteristic. This is a very good feast, said the reeling old man, and the wine also is very good, but you evil-minded wee-wees, French, and you false-hearted men of Tahiti, are all very bad. By the latest accounts, most of the islanders still refuse to submit to the French, and what turn events may hereafter take it is hard to predict. At any rate, these disorders must accelerate the final extinction of their race. 
along with the few officers left by Dupetit Thouar, were several French priests, for whose unobstructed exertions in the dissemination of their faith, the strongest guarantees were provided by an article of the treaty. But no one was bound to offer them facilities, much less a luncheon, the first day they went ashore. True, they had plenty of gold, but to the natives it was anathema, taboo, and for several hours and some odd minutes they would not touch it. Emissaries of the Pope and the Devil, as the strangers were considered, the smell of sulphur hardly yet shaken out of their canonicals, what islander would venture to jeopardize his soul and call down a blight upon his breadfruit by holding any intercourse with them? That morning the priests actually picnicked in a grove of coconut trees, but before night Christian hospitality, in exchange for a commercial equivalent of hard dollars, was given them in an adjoining house. Wanting in civility, as the conduct of the English missionaries may be thought, in withholding a decent reception to these persons, the latter were certainly to blame in needlessly placing themselves in so unpleasant a predicament. Under far better auspices, they might have settled upon some one of the thousand unconverted isles of the Pacific, rather than have forced themselves thus upon a people already professedly Christians. End of chapters 31 and 32 Recording by Tricia G.